Welcome to Discipline. This week, I speak to Zandi Fell from the Zolt Group about her journey from the boardrooms of Toyota as their Diversity and Equal Opportunity Manager, Employee Relations Manager, and National Recruitment Manager, to running her own business, the Zolt Group, with her partner, Tony. Zandi says there is nothing soft and fluffy about workplace relations, and by gum, it's not for the faint-hearted. Join us this week as we look at how emotions cause conflict, how conflict can actually be good, and how to change your thinking to avoid being sucked down a workplace conflict vortex. I've been able to cast aside all my false notions about HR, and you will too. Enjoy Zandi Fell on Discipline. Zandi Fell, Director at the Zolt Group, welcome to Discipline. Hi. I've been looking forward to this interview for a number of weeks. You say there's nothing soft and fluffy about workplace relations. Uh, There's a strategic advantage. So when you were a kid, uh, what did you want to be growing up? Because I'm having visions here of you crushing your siblings in Monopoly. (laughs) I always thank my siblings, actually, because I think that I'm sandwiched by two strong personality siblings, and I was mediator from from the outset. That was my job to to find the peace. I still play that role as a family member. Um, middle child. As a yeah, as a middle child, I wanted to be a psychiatrist my whole life. I wanted to be a psychiatrist um, until I studied straight straight sciences in year twelve and went. I don't think I can sit on my bottom for very long and study to be a doctor. And, yeah, so then my path changed. <laughs> you did um, change path, but you obviously worked hard at school, so you're a good student. I'm not sure I was a good student, but I was capable enough. Studious. Studious, I was, yes, yes, mm. yes. You got into law? Yes. Um, was it then that IR and politics kicked in? Not at all. Not I, a young I, liberal, lung, young no, labourite, <laughs> green? No, no politics in my, in, in, with me. Not even, you did arts as well and still nothing? I majored in history. Yep. Um, I, I sort of probably, I, I fell into law because I got the marks, I think. Both my parents are lawyers and told me not to do it because I wasn't suited to it and they were probably right. But I sort of kept going because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I had major career crisis at uni. I wanted to be a police officer for a while and a social worker and then the flavour of the month um, at the time when I um, was about to finish uni was human resources. And so you went straight from law school to Berry and took a role in that area? Well, I sort of – the way I got my first job's a little bit interesting. I was um, studying for my final law exams and an ad came on television it was a berry fruit juice ad and um, it was about racism and they had a pineapple and a, a pineapple talking to a strawberry saying, your skin's funny and a lemon and a lime and an orange saying, mixed marriage. And then it said "People in racism in people is just as stupid. And it was a time of Pauline Hanson way back in the sort of her first. Wow, I don't, I don't yeah, remember you that. You might not, but no. it really talked to me. So I wrote a letter because we actually wrote letters to the managing director Yes. Saying I'm pa- I want to put my passion into a company who has these values. I want to do human resources, but I've got no experience. And he rang me and he said, I don't have a job for you, but I'd like to meet you. So I went in jeans and a T-shirt because that's what you do when you're not having uh, an interview. Yeah, you're yeah, just yeah. meeting someone. And we, we chatted for a while and he offered me a job. And that was it was a South Australian company, Berry? Their headquarters were in Melbourne. Okay. But they did have manufacturing plants in South Australia, Berry, which is where it started, yeah. So that's how I got my first job, and I 
Yeah. So, yeah, that's how I went from law to human resources. And then when I was in human resources, Barry was fabulous to me. They really opened, like, allowed me to expose me to lots of um, different um, aspects of HR. And I was allowed to set up the diversity program, which now is pretty common, but back then was sort of really cutting edge. And I had an amazing mentor at Barry. Yep. And she she said to me, if you want to be taken seriously in HR, you need to go and earn your IR stripes. Okay. And so that's how I got into So you got some sliding door moments, but the one thing that strikes me about all of this is um, the power of advertising and the power of values. You're attracted to a 100%. company to through an ad, yep. but it was the display of values that really attracted you yes. to this company. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, yeah. Yes. Because personally, I would have probably placed, you know, less emphasis on this in the last two decades of my life. But mm. more and more I'm seeing the absolute attraction of alignment of values yeah. for people and how uh, companies build great cultures through having these values at the heart of their business. The values, but it's also what's being lived. So Barry, I was, I was, I still am idealistic, but I was a very idealistic graduate who wanted to work for a company whose values I believed in and I felt that they were doing good. And so that just sort of aligned really nicely. Um, and I, I feel like as I sort of, you know, as I've gone on in my career, I have been attracted to leaders who have, the right values, even if it's not the organisation. Yeah. And I'm wondering whether you got an accelerated learning curve at Berry because I know there was some uh, mergers and acquisitions going on around yeah. about this time through National Foods. So was that a very uh, tumultuous time, a baptism of fire? It's interesting. That's, um, that, uh, it was really interesting. Yes, I knew nothing about human resources. And my boss, um, Rose Thompson at the time, used to laugh at me because every week I was like, amazed at what HR does so you know she sent me off for a week without outplacement counsellors and I'd go oh we're so good we offer outplacement counselling to employees and she'd like roll her eyes and goes it's pretty standard Andy and <laughs> so that's how in my first six months in HR like, we have an EAP program that supports how amazing are we and she'd go pretty standard Andy right. it was so- like an ongoing thing but Yes, we, we were a very progressive team. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the, the – I, I think I just landed, luckily, in a, a place that was quite progressive. But it probably uh, about 18 months in, we took over well, national food. We, we, yeah. It doesn't we, sound like luck, though. I mean, you wrote the letter. I know, but there is – I don't know. Like, you know, I was probably – I was procrastinating. It was probably constitutional law and, you know, I was watching Bold and the Beautiful. And you're right, 100%, but I have, I've been, it's, I've been known to do, you know, follow idealistic things like that before. Yeah. So um, you're right, it's not luck, but you make your own luck. Yep. But um, when, we, when we started, when National Foods took over, HR was given a particular mandate. We were, we were explicitly told that we weren't going to be progressive anymore. We were going to be maintainers. Yep. And I'm not a maintainer. So for me, that was... Um, out, out the door. Yeah, but it was very. It was. It was done in a way like let's just. This is what's really going to be here. You. you it, it might not suit you. That sounds very disappointing. So you. Uh, yeah, I think my biggest disappointment is the the same managing director that I sat down with who had my first interview. Um, he he called me in to tell me this, and he basically said, "Tell me what job you want in the organisation, and you can stay." And I went away and thought about it, and I sort of think I, you know, all my colleagues C- were leaving. CEO? <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have said it, but I should, I'll tell you what I should have said. So I came back to him, and because all my colleagues were leaving or being made redundant and, you know, I felt a bit probably, you know, um, I said to him, no, this is not the place for me. But what I wish, if there's one thing I wish I could turn back time, I wish I had said to him, I'll be your PA. 
Right. I would have been a terrible PA, but I would have loved the opportunity to 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 just watch him work and watch be the, a fly on the wall. Be a fly on the wall. I would yeah. have been a terrible PA. So, but <laughs> but again, I always say that like my bigger one of my biggest career or business regrets was that I didn't take that opportunity. I was probably it was an emotional decision to leave because everyone else I loved and had worked with was kind of leaving. But I don't regret moving to Toyota. So you moved to Toyota, and then you had another incredible role. Um, You've gone here and become the diversity and equal opportunity manager, had a stinted employee relations manager, national recruitment manager, and HR manager of supplier risk. I mean, this is unbelievable experience. Toyota's Toyota's really good at what was really good at moving people around and giving different exposure. Primarily, I was in the industrial relations team. Right. Primarily in industrial relations, moving and, and employee relations, and then like. The recruitment one I did, I, when I came back from mat leave once, I was given that role and I, you know, I have so much more respect for recruitment. Well, I have, that. the reason I've been looking forward to this interview so much is because I actually know nothing about industrial relations, yeah. very light on HR yeah. and employee relations. I mean, wh- what does it mean to the uninitiated? What does it all mean? You know, you started by saying that I say that there's nothing soft and fluffy about good workplace relationships, and that is it in a nutshell. Um, you you have to have connection with the people you're working with so that they engage their energy, which makes them productive. That that's in a nutshell what it is. And I think far too often people think that that these this is a, these are soft skills, these relationship building, this ability to influence a negotiation are seen as soft skills. There is nothing soft and fluffy about having good relationships in your workplace yeah they mean that you have a strategic advantage to achieve the things you need to do yeah that doesn't mean every relationship needs to be you know a 10 out of 10 different relationships come in different shapes and sizes but those that are are fundamental to you achieving what you need to achieve in your role they they're a strategic advantage and is it as simple as trying to smooth the waters between management and a workforce i mean you know that's my sort of Oh, look, I think, I mean, we could we could have a whole another discussion around industrial relations in Australia and I, I haven't been involved in that sense for, you know, over a decade. So, I'm, you know, but I think it's too, too, it's simplistic to think that, that, that there, there are employee interests and employer interests. They overlap. They fundamentally overlap. And I think good industrial practice is to recognise that you actually have the same interests and to maximise them. Yeah. Um, so yes, sometimes when there's the, when there's conflict, it's about bringing those parties together and helping them understand that that's the case. Yes. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it, yeah, I think, um, more often than not, there's, there's more in common than there isn't. Yeah. Um, but it's fascinating again from an outsider, cause I look at something like a Toyota, which is from my understanding, got a, a, a unionized workforce yes, very, yep. and, uh, you know, an overseas multinational, yes. uh, running the company. Yes. So you've got With two very strong values, very yes. strong values. Yes. But how do you have these people on the same page? Where you've got one looking to maximise profits, surely this creates an us versus them mentality. Well, oh, there's definitely an us versus them, and, yeah. and the auto industry is notorious for you know hard entrenched industrial environment. Um, and then the multinational being an you know a Japanese culture also was a different flavour to it. So sometimes we had ridiculously silly disputes over the number of chicken wings and in the canteen and toilet paper 
and they're the ones that kind of were sometimes harder to to work through than the the pay increase. I always say, you know, when negotiations stall, it's very rarely actually about the money um, because that's actually the transparent bit. People kind of get that there's actually a, a spot where you land. It, it, there's often a whole lot of other emotional things that come up and, you know, I, I think so much of employee relations is around the emotions, but in Australia particularly we are not necessarily very mature at actually acknowledging that it's emotional. Um, and, yeah, so I think that's where we get unstuck. And from your point of view, I mean, you're working in an HR department. Yep. Um, and the management of the company is your client in some respects, but then you've got to be empathetic to the other side to, yeah. to find that equilibrium i mean how do you how do you balance that so i have fundamentally and i and i i wish that this was you know something that we could talk about as an industry for hr um i i would like hr to position themselves as representing the interests of the business so i don't work for management i never ever thought i worked for management i worked for toyota yeah and that meant sometimes to represent the business's interests that meant sometimes more often than not I was going back to management and going, no, no, or you've done this. What you want to do is okay, but the way you've done it is not. So you're not painting for me a picture of a soft skill at all. You're painting for Correct. me a picture of a team that actually has sometimes no friends anywhere. No friends. I actually say employee relations particularly was the loneliest job. I've yeah, it sounds. You're with people all day. You're with people all day every day, but you're you're either considered the expert or the the alien in the room or um the the police officer sometimes um and i didn't necessarily have a problem with that i think the problem is and is when people go into hr or particularly into employee relations like thinking that they're getting into it because they like people right it's i think the best sort of hr people are good with people but you're actually just actually good at business. Yes. And and being able to um, help the business achieve its interests. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, this is fascinating to me because, you know, I fall into the, the masses that have that view of HR. Yes. Good with people. Yep. Um, you know, the term I've heard before of fluffy bunnies yep. and that yep. sort of stuff. I'm yep. sure you've heard it all before. And, 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 and also the other, the other extreme is the bloody HR. Like because yeah. – and that comes also from the fact that no one actually knows oh, – sorry, I shouldn't say no one. I'm generalising, but – there's a misunderstanding from what HR does, both from HR practitioners and from the people who tap into those services or are forced to use those services. HR, again, comes in all shapes and sizes. And so depending what sort of business it is and their evolution and that sort of thing, HR can take on different sorts of roles. But when, when HR is not clear about what its role is, then you have this disconnect. And then that's where, in the, in the absence of clarity, You'll have people saying HR just does that fluffy stuff or HR just does recruitment. Like recruitment's an unbelievably important function and you get it wrong, <laughs> you pay for it for the next however long. But, yeah, I, I think that many people yeah. have a misunderstanding of what HR is and I think many people who get into HR get into it because they think that they like people. It's people management. Yeah, and it is, and it is people management, but it's people management to achieve a, a business goal. So, yeah. So I know for a fact that, uh, you know, apart from all this incredible experience you've had in the in the business world, you've then lectured for three years at Monash on employee relations. Yeah. So, again, very uneducated in this space. <laughs> What's employee relations? So employee, they're all, I mean, they're slightly different disciplines. Employee relations, 
So within HR, HR sort of takes on the whole space of, I guess, the employment life cycle. So anything from attraction to recruitment to onboarding to pay to all those different things. Um, employee relations more about the engagement of your staff or in an industrial setting it would be negotiating with unions or making sure that people policies is in place. So you deal with a lot of the, the um, misconduct issues or investigations yeah. or, um, you know, looking to mediate with people who are not working well together. And and some of these, uh, you know, employee relation or industrial relations issues you get, I mean, you must sometimes on both sides of the fence, management and employees, scratch your head at some of the things that uh, you... Scratch my head or want to bang, bang people's heads together. Yeah. But it's funny because um, we all do... We all, we all do silly things and things that if we were thinking more rationally, we would... You know, so, you know, you asked me at the beginning, what did I want to be when I grew up? And, you know, I was sort of thinking, how did I get into this space? Well, I loved Donald Duck as a kid. Loved Donald Duck. Um, Everyone else loved Mickey Mouse. I loved Donald Duck. And I remember watching Donald Duck and, you know, he'd had a temper tantrum. And I'd be going, no, but it's not Donald Duck. It's it's the fact that Daffy did this or someone else did something else. And I really felt for Donald in that moment. That's how I feel when I walk into a room. People aren't acting their best. Yeah. They've been inflamed. Yeah. Emotions are high. And I have to embrace their internal Donald Duck. I say I'm seeing Donald only to help that happen. Really, it's a mantra that I feel like everyone at me. Because you say, like, the things I hear, one day I'm going to write a book. I always say one day. Everyone's got a book in them. Yep. One day, Tony, we haven't talked about him yet, um, we're going to write a book around some of the cases we hear because some of the things are – Hysterical. Some of them are tragic. Some of them are abs- absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, it's a real cross section of people you must see. Um, so you've done this for ten years. Yeah. Two thousand and ten. You then step out of corporate life. Yes. Uh, step out of academic world and start yeah. a business. Start a business. Uh, you've had some amazing jobs. Had incredible working conditions. Probably yeah. you know great salaries, great support. Why leave? Um, so I don't think I really – I didn't really think about it. If we take a step back, I was working at Toyota. I was doing already the stuff at Monash kind of on the side, but um, I was working part-time and um, my employer had no idea how to engage me with my heart and my head in a part-time capacity. And it, I had, it had been made clear to me that my options were limited um, because of that, made very clear. Um and so right or wrong behaviors from the employer to say well well, wrong like you've got someone who you consider high potential which is what i had been told who then has a couple of kids and says yet for the next couple of years i want to work part-time and realistically it was three years i worked part-time i now work full-time again and quite possibly could have still been in that employer um but they just weren't engaging my head or my heart and yeah. So I, I actually used, under the guise of consulting, I came home to my husband because I really just wanted to extend my maternity leave <laughs> and said, I think I'll consult. And in my head, it was just going to be for a little while. And I spoke to a mentor of mine at the time who was actually our lawyer that we used, Kate Jenkins. And um, she actually said, Zandia, I would, I would give you work. And I went, oh, would, would you? <laughs> she said, yeah, give you some work. And I went, oh, and I went home that night and I said, I'm going to do consulting. And then really, I really thought it would be a couple of months and I'd go find another employer whose values, blah, blah, blah. 
And here we are. <laughs> so uh, another thing for the for the listeners, a great yeah. number of people I've spoken to yeah. have started their entrepreneurial entrepreneurial career mm. by being very close to what they know mm. and finding a client somewhere immediately mm. to break away, which mm-hmm. obviously leverages your knowledge and your existing networks, but reduces your risk in getting into your own business. Correct. So I never really thought about it. It's funny you say the term entrepreneur. Um, I reckon, I think for the first couple of years of my business, I wouldn't have said that I was an entrepreneur. And then I got approached by a university study that wanted to look at female entrepreneurs. And I went, oh, no, no, it's not me. I'm, I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, because we use that word a lot, women. We're just this. And then the, the woman I was speaking to said, no, no, you, what are you talking about? Yeah. It really changed things for me because it's not a label that I had thought I could do or be attributed to. Well, in yeah. Australia in particular, we always grew up, especially, you know, in the 80s and 90s, yeah. thinking of entrepreneurs as Alan Bond, yes. Christopher Scase. Yes. You know, this was a, yeah. a dirty word in yeah, Australia. Yeah, and yeah, now yeah. what it is is it's the engine room of this country. Yeah. Um, starting a small business. Yeah. Making scarce resources yep. make on, the ends on meet. the kitchen table. Yeah, yeah exactly. 100%, <laughs> with the laptop that you had to stop stop every two hours because it was running low on battery. Quite, yeah. quite often, the laptop that's given to you from your work. Well, I, I bought it out. I've told yep. us exactly why. You know. Yeah. So that's yeah. the that's the perfect uh, example. But you've obviously at some point gone. Yes. Okay, things have gone well. You've got a client. Yes. But then. Work either stops coming in or piles up, yep. and you go, "What have I done here?" Yep. <laughs> so it was definitely the it was definitely the the latter. I think I just took on anything initially. Again, it was really just to pass some time, but that I had really interesting bits and pieces popping in, um, and the stuff that I was na- that I liked doing was the the more employee relations or the conflict stuff. But I would um, I would write a report on an investigation, and I need someone to read it. So Tony, my husband, would come home and I'd say, can you just read this report? It's only 30 pages. I have to give it to my client tomorrow. And so he would stay up all night reading my reports and then he turned around because he's got a similar background and said, why aren't we doing this together? Yeah. And that's kind of how the Zolt Group became the two of us. And again, our plan was not to – it wasn't – we weren't turning it into a big business. It was our kids are young. Yeah. Why don't we do this for a year or two so we can both be involved with the kids and balance the – and it, and it sort of made sense. Like even the, the the name that we chose, the Zolt Group, like I had a list of 15 names and I think the Zolt Group was probably number 14 and, you know, I was on the phone with the guy from the, you know, um, the A, whatever, you, the guy, the people you ring to get the name that's not similar Asic. to anyone else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he and going down the list, no, you can't have that, you can't <laughs> have that. And I had had Zolta because my maiden name was Alta, so it was going to be, and t- my, Tony, my husband, said, you can't be Zolta the consultant. <laughs> you could have been. No, I could have been because I was like, well, and I remember saying to him, yes, I can. It's going to be for like three minutes. Yes. And it's because that was my nickname at school was Zolta. And um, so the Zolt group sort of appeared. And yeah, then great. Tony joined. And we did that again for another like year or two, just doing what that was our mission, you know, to be involved with the kids, just take anything that came in. And then it, we got to a point where we went, um, I think we've got, I think we've got a business yeah. or a practice as we'd prefer it to be known, but we've got this opportunity. Like, should we go get jobs or should we keep rolling the dice here? Yep. And and so we we obviously decided to, to keep it going and then probably a year or two after that, we actually went, we're now in a position where we can actually define what we want to do. Yep. 
So, you know, in those first couple of years, I'd probably do any, not anything that came HR way because, again, HR is very broad and there are things that I that I don't do, like remuneration and things like that. Um, but when we sat down, you know, a couple of years in and said, what do we actually like? What are, what are we actually really good at? Um, it's that conflict resolution space. And presumably you also had, uh, you know, very good understanding of what the opportunities were in the market by that stage. Well, so I think. <laughs> I'm sure. You know, it's actually not. It's it's actually not at all. In fact, if anything, we are a referral business. Yeah. We do, we don't do any. We've, we haven't had to do any market like I'm not no cold calling or anything of that. And no, I didn't. I wasn't necessarily aware of what was out out there. I definitely knew some colleagues were doing similar stuff, but I consider them part of my network. I've got we've got a group of people that we see eye to eye on. We respect the way they work and. We will pass overflow work on to them because one of the other decisions we had to make, um, and that's why I say we probably prefer to be called a practice than a business, was, you know, at, at a stage, again, a couple of years ago, we had to go, we've got so much work on, which is a great thing to have as a small business. Um, do we take on other consultants or what do we do? And we actually decided um, explicitly not to take on other consultants because um that would mean that you're managing people doing the work that you love doing. Yep. And I love being in that room. That's what I'm good yep. at. I'm helping people work through what they need. Um, Playing to your to skills do. the whole time. So that's why we didn't. And we sort of have kind of moved into that positioning ourselves as experts and thought leaders in this space. And and, and when doing that, though, you know, you, you're taking taking an independent position now into a company, which yeah. to some extent it sounds like you were do, trying to do that when you're in a company, but... Ultimately, you're being fed by the, the the masters. But now, did you have to have a change in mindset when you when you've come across, or you can just continue on your merry way? I, I think I think again, this might surprise. Like even just have heard, and even me saying it makes me smile. I have a really strong fairness um, indicator, and that's connected to professional integrity. So I, I think we are engaged. I like to think we're engaged because we're compassionately confronting and we will say what needs to be said. And if that means the person who's engaged me is not happy with what I've said, I'm actually quite comfortable that they might not yep. engage me again. Um, so I don't think we've, we haven't. We've, I know I've written um, reports or done investigations that have probably um, will have implicated the person that's hired you. Implicated the person you. who engaged me. Yeah. And it's just, you know, first of all, I feel very comfortable with that position because that's part of what it is. I also think that there's an element of the way that you have that conversation with them, which I'd like to think that, you know, we also soften yep. whatever that means. Yep. Yeah. Um, just going back to the business yes. bit. So what about all the new stuff that's come along for you then? Admin, finance, oh, yeah. sales. <laughs> I mean, even, even the you bits know, of marketing you well, have to do. And- it is interesting because... That sort of stuff, again, I had never, I've never had in my head that I'd run a business. So to be running my own business again, like it was a surprise to me. And I think some of the aspects of the business I, I actually enjoy a lot more than I thought I would. Um, the the finance side of it, I, I, I don't, um, but that's all right. Like I think, you know, that's something that Tony takes care of. Yeah, very um, unsurprising, by the way, for, for lawyers and people who have studied law yeah. to be uh, a little bit uh, perturbed by finance. Well, I think it, I was never, and I say I'm, you know, not going to, I'm actively not making this same practice for my kids, but I was never exposed to it. Yeah. I did straight sciences at schools, so yeah. physics, chem, you know, 
and I just was never exposed to that side. When I was at university, actually, you just may have been thought of bits for ages, I went and did a short course on the stock exchange, through the stock exchange, like, I don't know, it was three months or whatever, because I know it's something that I just was never exposed to. Yeah. Um, looking, I think now, though, I, I that was probably just because I didn't know what it was. It's funny, you know, and completely off topic, yeah. but it is funny we teach yeah. all these things in schools, yeah. but none of the practicalities no. of, no. you know, how you run a business, where you no. go to. There's, there's a business in telling people how to yeah, run a business. 100%. Yeah. And I think the other, so you sort of mentioned that. You also mentioned sales. So for me in my head, I had a really big psychological stumbling yep. block around I don't do sales. Yep. I'm not a, and again, it's what you, you bring that history of, you know, I'm not a used car salesman. I'm not, you know, and I went, I actually went and found someone who loves sales that I really resonated with. And um, she actually, made me realize that I do sales all the time and I love it. Like if I'm talking to someone and they have a problem and I think I can solve it for them and I help them, that's sales. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, I, and for me that was like a big aha moment. And all the skills you need in sales are the things that I'm good at, asking questions, understanding, getting to the root cause, seeing what people want to achieve. Yep. Asking questions, I am. that is my strength. I think there's personally think there's nothing better in business than someone buying something you've created yeah. and and you love. I think that to me is, yeah, it's sales, but that's the adrenaline for me in business. And so when you've made this transformation, um, did you have a moment where you sort of went, oh, I'm just talking about the things I love. 100%. Yeah. And that's why, like, I still probably am not so comfortable with sales, but I actually enjoy doing the sales. And I am also very comfortable. I, I, I want to sell someone something they need. So I'm actually just helping them. You know, I'm a personal shopper, which is funny because I hate shopping, but I'm helping them find something that they need. Yeah. And when I meet someone or I speak to someone and what they're talking about is not what I need, what I, what I have for them, I don't try and change what I have or my offering yep. to, to, to mould to what they want. I will actually say that's actually not what I do. I'll, sometimes I'll know someone I can refer them to. Yep. So I actually, that sales part of the side of the business um, is much easier for me. And it's, it's, I mean, when someone's ringing you because they've been given your number, it's, it's, it's not the cold call sales. And that's what we have. We're really lucky people, you know, that that's how our business has been for 10 years now. Now I'm hesitant to ask this question, Uh-oh. but I've, <laughs> I'm naturally assuming yes. that you face different obstacles as a woman than a man would face in the business world, uh, especially in an area where you're dealing with the, uh, I'm imagining heavy, yeah, heavy unionized yeah. workforces. So, so we want to get more women into this entrepreneurial space mm. and the engine room mm. of Australia. What needs to change? Well, that, that's, that's not what the question I thought you were going to ask. I thought you were going to ask me about if, is your assumption correct? Well, is my assumption correct? <laughs> I'll start with the assumption. So, I think that there are pros and cons to being female in this space. Um, I, I should take a step back. I didn't. Oh, thank you. I didn't. I didn't, um, I always say I didn't quite realise that I was female until I started working because I went to a school and I went to university that just saw you as talent regardless of if you're, you know, what your sex was and it was only when I hit the workforce that it, that it became apparent to me that I was, that that whole female thing was playing a different game. Was playing a different game. Yeah. Now, for me, there have been times where that's been a strength. So in, at Toyota... 
um, Toyota took an active strategy that they were recruiting females into their industrial relations team. They had had significant industrial um, disputes and conflict and they took on the the approach that in a 98% male workforce bringing in some women might actually have a positive effect and they were 100% That's a very progressive thought process. Correct, correct. And they were 100% right. And one of the union guys I met on my first day, and I talk about him often when I'm doing at, at running our training courses, you know, he introduced himself by saying, I broke the nose of your predecessor. And I think that was a bit of a threat and a bit of a scare. And, you know, to me, it was a, it was a bit of a laughable moment because I'm like this five foot two, or two almost two um, <laughs> female. And I just sort of went, you know, whatever. So it, for me that um, there's, been, there's been positives of having being a female. You know, even little things like, you know, a room of men and they're, they're swearing and they turn to you and they go, oh, sorry. And, you know, part of you wants to go, do you think I haven't heard it? <laughs> but I didn't. I have actually chosen to go, yep, thank you. Yeah. If that's going to lift the, the caliber the or the yeah, tone of yeah. the conversation, bring it on. Um, so that, that's been kind of, I think, the positive, but definitely the stereotypes of um, of how you're labelled or what you are or aren't capable of are also... Well, I'm thinking Very much real machismo, yeah. locker room talk, yeah. stuff that's... Oh, that's, e- that, that's easy. The the guys on the shop floor, I actually think being female was overall fabulous. Yeah. Because the other thing is I would ask them questions that they probably wouldn't speak to me about another bloke. Not And, again, this comes back to there's nothing soft and fluffy. People in Australia particularly, we're not really great at talking about feelings. Yeah. But if you think employees don't have feelings, like we're kidding ourselves. Yeah. So for me to go in and talk about how the impact something's had on someone, for them to open up to me um, as a female, I'd like to think there's some skill there too, but I think, uh, you know, that worked to my advantage at times. And what about in the business world, the way then you're perceived in like deal-making or the advice you give or, again, joining in locker room talk where it's very much... I think as a consultant, uh, people are engaging you and you feel it less so because they've actually obviously tried to engage you. I think when I was in-house, I definitely felt um, that my opinion was diminished at times because I was female. Yeah. In fact, I went to meet the, the head of, um, this is one of my classic stories, I went to hear the, meet the head of manufacturing at Toyota to present a strategy about our um, employee relations and it was... Um, he, I asked him what he envisaged. I asked him questions like what he thought our biggest, which areas of the business would be our biggest risk based on relationships. And he said to me, I feel like I'm being interviewed for Women's Day. And I turned to him and said, well, I feel like I'm trying to add to the bottom line of Toyota Australia. And, you know, there was just this moment of disconnect where he suddenly went, oh, 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 so, oh, you know, and I just went, You're, you've completely missed the point. Yeah. And in that moment, and, you know, another one, like there was a time when I was the manager of um, of diversity and obviously, you know, there's a whole pool of women that you're not engaging when you've got 98% male workforce and we couldn't get engineers and we couldn't get, so you'd think of looking at alternative pools and I wanted to present to the board a strategy about increasing female um, females in the workplace. And I tried to convince my director, who was male, to present that at the board, and he wouldn't. And so at Toyota it was very hierarchical who was allowed to and who wasn't. And he made an exception to the rule that someone at my level could go and present at the board rather than it being him. And I know 100% that was because it was a female thing and he didn't feel comfortable with it. 
Now, today I would call him on it. Yeah. 20 years ago. Yeah, it's I was just I was just frustrated with him and just talked about him behind his back. But today, with the maturity that I have, I would actually just call him on it. And I'd hope to think that the maturity that companies are now getting uh, I hope, I hope in so. 20 years, <laughs> but I still feel like yeah. uh, there's a lot of extra preparation that yeah. we need to be giving yeah. female entrepreneurs um, coming into a business. Is there anything that you would advise as a networking groups or any? So I, I look, I think, you know, a lot of business still happens because of relationships and networks. And so the networks get passed on to like people. So what, what, what it requires is those who, who um, are in charge of the rules to want to change the rules. And at the moment, most of those strong networks, you're right, are very male-dominated. And so it requires the men in those groups to say, well, why would I want to change this? Like there's got to be a what's in it for them. Yeah. Um, and to actively go out and engage um, with a different network. Yeah. So it's no different to if I'm I've a network and I suddenly go, oh, I don't know enough about artificial intelligence. I'm going to go and find experts in that will go and you have to actually say this is something that's a deficit in my network and I will do something about it. Yep. Workplaces. So you're an expert in IR, ER, HR and conflict. How does workplace conflict come about? Oh, my gosh. How doesn't it come? If there are people, there is there is the potential for conflict. Yep. So we really only we, – we now specialise in conflict. I'm not really – we don't really do the industrial relations stuff anymore. It's more the, the conflict resolutions. To answer your question, how does conflict come about whenever there's people? Oh, that's not true. There are processes that can conflict, but it's the people who have a problem with them, so you deal with it. Um, and what about the workplaces then that don't have that much conflict? What, there is what, always conflict right. in the workplace, and this is some some conflict is positive. Yeah, actually, this is I, I think conflict needs a bit of a PR job because conflict has got a bad rap because some conflict is um, really positive and actually is necessary for innovation. Yep. You know, that's how things change. We've been doing something and someone has a different idea. Yep. And that's how we change. And that difference at that point of difference is where conflict can occur. So yep. difference can be a really can yeah. be a really positive thing. And the teams that that you say don't have conflict, what they actually do is they can just stay in the conflict in a much easier way. Yeah. Um, just, you know, the, I always say the definition of a good workplace relationship is your ability to deal with difference. So if we get along and we like, you know, we see eye to eye on things, that's all really good and nice. That doesn't mean we have an effective workplace relationship. It's when there's a point of difference and we can work through that. So this is interesting. Um, a, a couple of things have been topical in the news lately. One is a company that said, you know, they wouldn't employ people. This is in the, America who support Donald Trump. Yeah. Yep. And there's been other companies in Australia like Atlassian recently who wanted everyone to take a day off for um, an environmental yep. cause. Yep, yep. I mean, these are by very nature likely to pick a side and therefore cause conflict and yep. force people. Is is this a good approach even though they've got altruistic uh, motives potentially? Um, look, I think both those examples are just companies wearing their values on their sleeve and there'll be people who are attracted to it and people who aren't. I was, it, you know, it's a perfect, that's why I was attracted to Berry or, you know, I had long aspirations of working for the body shop for similar sort of reasons. So I guess they will, people will self-select on, on the values that organisations are wearing on their sleeve. However, what I think you're asking me is, does that create conflict internally? Yes. And it definitely does. I think it can, sorry, it definitely can. I think our society has become much more polarised 
and our workplaces obviously reflect that. So in the past, if you if you had a particular opinion and I had a very, very different opinion, I think societally we would have been expected to just kind of go, okay, so on topic X, you think A, I think B, okay. No so it's like a pretty mature way to deal with it? Well, well that's, that's kind of, I think, what a tone of what we were doing, whereas I think now on topic X, if you think A and I think B and they're so polarised apart, obviously we can't get along about anything else. And I think we've become a lot more absolute and a lot more rights-based, which means I'm right, you're wrong. <laughs> whereas um, what we want to try and create um especially in companies, is that actually you thinking A and me thinking B on that topic, that might not actually even have anything to do with our work. And on a different topic, our difference of a view could be fabulous. It could actually get the organisation and the individuals to a better place. And how much of this conflict in the workplace then is not actually about work? Most of it. Right. Most, most, conflict. most conflict is around actually is around emotion. Yep. So we often say, you know, one of the myths about conflict is we say, oh, don't take it personally. Just, just, you know, just, you know, don't take it personally. I don't know what that means because every <laughs> conversation you have, there's an element of personal in it. And when yeah. we say personal, it's emotional. We're emotional beings. And one of the things we know from neuroscience, you know, more and more is our emotions will always trump our rational thinking. So anyone who says, "I'll oh, just think about it rationally," <laughs> you just go, "What do you mean? I have to, you have to turn off the emotion before you can get to the rational." And that's why, like in conflict, sometimes you know you'll have one party going, "But I keep showing them the facts and the figures, and they're just not being rational. They're just not being reasonable," is what you hear, not rational. They're just not being. Re-. And I'm like thinking because they can't see your rationale yet. They're so emotionally charged, and we have to deal with that. And I think one of the issues we have is is actually seeing emotion. Um, as negative or as as being difficult to deal with and in the workplace when you know we tend to not want to talk about emotions and Australians we're not very good at talking about emotions even more so so what you end up having is this environment where you don't really want to talk about it it's the elephant in the room we can fix the process yes we can put another step in the process but the process isn't the problem it's the way Bob speaks to John when he needs to use the process that's the problem and how I mean this must be incredibly difficult to manage across this backdrop of um political correctness and yeah. all spectrum and myriad of things, um, you know, how do you balance that in a, in a conflict solution? I, I don't think it's a matter of balancing it. I think it's a matter of helping people be transparent and helping people reflect and assess if they're being reasonable in the application of their thinking Yeah, um, and how it plays out in the workplace. So you must have you must have witnessed some incredibly unreasonable behaviour. Well, I don't, well, this is where I go back to Donald Duck. You know, like this is where I go, I don't know, all re- most people are reasonable. Yeah. Right, most people. I think they say 2% of the population is actually irrational. The yeah. rest is. So odds are you're not dealing with someone who's actually irrational. So it makes sense to them. So this is why I say in a, in a conflict, be curious. Go in there with a curious component of you to go, try and nut out what they're doing yeah try and nut out where their thinking is coming from because what will either happen is it'll either give you information which allows you to try and influence them knowledge is power correct or alternatively you'll have your thinking changed and that that can be awesome too so yep. either of those um motivators should help people to want to actually be more curious about what the other person's thinking but you'll only do that if, you, if there's something in the relationship that you rate. Yeah, right. And this is where I go. So that's why it's that whole, you know, we, we it, there's nothing soft and fluffy about this. 
But I also think it's part of the PR and the psychology. So I know uh, there are some organisations and individuals I will go in and I'll actually say, so tell me, tell me how this is making you feel and I'll do a bit that side. But I will walk into a room sometimes with a, you know, a scientist. I'm, I'm helping some scientists at the moment and I think if I said that to to him, he would probably laugh at me. So I don't. I, say, I ask the same question but I say it differently. I say this other person hasn't met your expectations. What were you expecting from them? It's the same question but it's the wording that allows him to talk about what he was expecting and on the flip side how someone was feeling it's just asking them the same thing. It sounds to me like in these, uh, you know, what are emotionally charged times mm. and polarised mm. times, you've picked a very good area with conflict mm. resolution uh, to get into and the skills yeah. are, um, you know, you've got to be incredibly dexterous and on your feet. Yeah, that's what I love. <laughs> um, well, if I'm in a workplace, yeah. how do I know if I'm in a good or bad workplace? How do I know if this is good or bad conflict that I'm experiencing? Um, there's an, there's a subjective element. So how, you know, I think that's, that's part of the difficult difficulty. We probably all have slightly different ideal or optimum conflict zones. Um, and that comes from our own, probably our own DNA and our upbringing and what we've been exposed to and all of that. So I would say there's an element of, um, self-assessment there. And then I think, you know, from a broader perspective, it's the, it's the impact on, on um, on the productivity of the organisation, the issue that we have is because this is seen as a soft area. We're not businesses don't see this as a leakage point, so they don't see conflict as a loss of energy, kind of just oozing out or you know morale being, or but yeah they don't because yeah. they're not they're not and they might be looking at morale, but you know you have you know your average conflict how many hours does that take yeah. how many how much mental space how much discretionary effort is not being exhibited yeah. and the flow on effect to the teams all of that sort of stuff but no, most companies are not measuring that and when you don't measure something in a company you don't have it doesn't have a value yep. so you know i sometimes like i sometimes say to an organization let's let's retrospectively look at your last conflict let's do the maths if i could give you back 20 grand like that, yeah, or fifty, yep. or five, whatever it is, and say, "Here you go. You can use it in any way you want because you've saved it." Wouldn't that be awesome? And that's actually when we're coaching managers or doing our workshops. One of the things we do is we have to change people's mindset around this. And one of it is they have there has to be a reason they want to do something differently. So if I can say to a manager, if I can give you thirty hours back because you dealt with this conflict at this point, not this point next time, how awesome is that? Yeah. Right. So we have to repackage well, it's a, it's it. It's a quantum shift in mindset Correct. for a lot of people, and it actually leads me on to another question. Because um, my thought was, if a manager's in conflict with a subordinate, yes, doesn't the manager always win? Oh no, no. I think that, and I think that's the that's the because um, people think there's power. Yeah. But it's it's a myth that employees don't have power. So the manager might have hierarchical power, but there's different types of power. So the, the you know employees have sometimes relational power, um, sometimes they have just the labour power. Like they, you know, if they don't like their manager, you're right, their manager's higher up on the hierarchy, but that manager needs them to achieve whatever and they're not doing it because they just want to piss this person off or pay them back or, you know, not engage, whatever it is. So I think I think there's not, um, there's never there's never a clear winner or loser anyway in yep. conflict ever. But, um, no, I think that it's underestimated, particularly like when an employee goes on stress leave and it's a protest stress leave because sometimes, you know, it, you know, it can be real but it can also be a protest. I mean, that is complete power. 
they're not at the workplace. They've withdrawn their energy from this manager mm. who had perceived power. Um, yeah. So, and I, think, and I think managers, I think managers sometimes there's a false sense of security that they have that power because they're the manager and they sometimes hide behind procedural power. So yep. we're going to have a performance discussion and the HR policy said we need to do this, this and this. So I'm going to do that. And they sit, you know, they think they're positioning themselves with that power, but they haven't understood that there's a broader dynamic. Yeah, it's fascinating. And that, that was actually going to be, um, you know, my next question. Great. Who does conflict yeah. in the workplace uh, impact the most? It's, well, it, it, I mean, I don't think there's one answer to that. It depends what the conflict is. Yeah. But it always affects more people than you think. Yes. And more things than you think. Um, like what I mean by like, you know, it can be productivity or success or just creative thinking. You know, when you've had to observe in an open plan office a an inappropriate exchange between two colleagues, there is no way that you're going back to your desk for five hours to be fully productive. Yeah. And there's no way that you are going to but even if you can do that, there's no way you're going to be creative. Yes. You just your your our brains are not wired that way. Yeah. So that is really hard to to assess. Other and they're they're the non obvious ones. The obvious ones are people who are involved, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, I mean this stuff is um you know, even from my own experience, incredibly difficult to navigate. Yes. And especially something like that where you overhear or you're part of a conversation where something horribly inappropriate gets said. Yeah. I mean it can it can um, destroy the fabric of a culture very quickly if very it's not quickly. if it's not nipped in the bud. Very quickly, and even fab- fabulous cultures can turn very quickly, and that's why this is about relationships. And relationships can change; they can change for the better, they can change for the worse, they can change really quickly. But if race- relationships are something you value and you see them as a strategic advantage, you will audit them and service them like you would other things that you value. So when let's go back to the beginning now. So you say. Uh, <laughs> You know, HR, ER is a strategic advantage. Is it because you can save so much energy for the company? Correct. Focusing on using that conflict for the advancement of ideas and thoughts rather than getting sucked into the mire of dispute resolution. Yeah. Yeah. So, and and, and so that's where like organisations that can see, like I say, conflict, you know, it does need that PR thing. Um, and I, uh, one of our catchphrases is that conflict resolution is just a fancy way of saying problem solving because, you know, everyone can problem solve and we're, we all want to be problem, good problem solvers. So if we turn people's head to looking at that. So there are organisers, we have clients who have worked with us to create cultures where conflict is, you know, the, the technical, you know, use of that word conflict is seen as a positive thing. And there are organisations that allow us to come in or, you know, and we upskill their own staff to help people have the skills and mindset to have difficult conversation or just to have better conversations, right? Take the word difficult out because that, again, is not good PR for the whole concept, just better conversations. Yeah. And having a better conversation means we will actually create space to be be critiques together, which means, we, you know, technically that might mean if you haven't bought into this that you see someone as being negative about you or your concept, but if you all agree on this framework of better conversations, then you create a space where you're naturally going to want to critique. And it's also, and again, Australia's a unique case because, you know, you get up in America and, you know, someone gets up to speak and says, everyone, good morning, throw your hands in the air and stand up and shake your head around. Yeah. Yeah. You get into Australia and say, we're going to do this, which again might have this perception of being fluffy. Yeah. And 60% of the audience doesn't get out of their chair. They fold their arms and go, I'm not doing that. You know, yeah. Yeah. 
So, I mean, how do you break through what is entrenched mindset about, uh, you know, conflict resolution? It's one person at a time. No, it's not really. It's not really. I think it's – and this is where I think it's not – you know, people go, I don't have the skills to do conflict resolution, and I always go, that's not true. You've been doing it since you were a toddler, right? You've got the skills. It's the mindset. And so um, either when we're coaching people or we're preparing people for a mediation or we're running our workshops – we spend quite a bit of time in that mindset thing. Now, we don't, again, often use that term mindset because people think that's a fluffy term. But really what I'm saying is, you know, Tony, why are you avoiding this conversation? And so the, the, the answer to that will then allow me to know where I'm, how I'm going to play with your mind. And I say it actively, openly to my clients, now it's time to play with your mind. And they will say, so the answer to that question, why are you avoiding this conversation might be, I'm really nervous about it'll have an impact or on how that they person, how they'll react. Yeah. And I'll say, okay. So that, that's our hurdle. Let's actually come up with the countermeasure. Let's actually brainstorm you, the ways could they you, could react. Could you start saying, I'm really nervous about how you could react to what I'm about to say? Or is yeah, that- you could. And again, like, again, what I love doing with people is making them realise they have lots of options. And, and even if you do choose the wrong option and it goes a bit pear-shaped, you can try again because conversations very, very, very rarely happen in one hit. They happen over time. Yeah. So let's say you and I have a clunky one today. That's not to say that, you know, I won't walk away and go, oh, that wasn't quite what I wanted. Why don't I go back to you and say, I didn't quite get that right. Or I think you've walked away with yeah. the wrong impression. Can we have another go? And you, to do that, you need to, uh, you know, Tony and I are always talking about my Tony, not you. <laughs> um, we talk about how, you know, there's an art and a science to difficult conversations. The science is learning the skills and understanding that there's different flows in conversations. And then there's the art form where you kind of look at the situation and decide which skills you're going to pull out of your backpack to use in this situation. Well, I know you're incredibly busy, but I would recommend you write that book because there <laughs> is, you know, there's getting to yes, maybe there's... I love that. Oh, it couldn't be that. They're, they're, that's the Bible. Yeah, the right. Bible. Well, there's, this is the next, uh, this is version two. This is, this is the two. New Testament of getting to yes. <laughs> but so you say uh, the Zolt group uh, is not into... Fluffy, but no. discipline is sometimes. Yep. So we're yep. into the quick fire round. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, who's your favourite comedian? Oh no, <laughs> don't ask me these things. Mm. Um, at the moment, I would say Trevor Noah. Who is your favourite tennis player? Oh, I'd have to. Uh, yeah, I'll go Ash Barty because I'm proud of her. Favourite band? Um, I'll say Fleetwood Mac because I'm going to hear them tomorrow night. Fondest childhood memory? That's a tough one. I had a great childhood. Lots of them. So. What's next for Zandy Fell? What's next for me? Um, from a business sense, yeah. it's to continue strengthening what we do and getting our message out there. And, uh, yeah, I think it's to, to continue growing what we've got and to um, take the opportunity of reflecting on the messaging that we probably want business leaders and others to have around conflict. Lastly, mm-hmm. anyone thinking of starting a business, what advice would you I think I would give them similar. I got given some really good advice by someone when I started consulting. They said, if you can't ride the highs and the lows, don't do it. And I think that that's really good advice. There are times where there's a high, you know, both of those, and you have to be able to stomach them. Yeah. And I would also say just um, take time, not that I necessarily do this very well, but from time to time, take time to stop and reflect on what's working and what's not and and making appropriate adjustments. Yep. Zandy Phil, thank you for being on Discipline. Thank you.